Okay, hello. My name is Jamie Murphy. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Philosophy in University College Cork in Ireland. My presentation today is called The Angry is Always Right. It's quite a provocative title, but hopefully by the end of this talk you'll see uh, what I was going for in coming up with it. So, in this talk I'll be arguing against the claim that an agent can get angry for no reason. It is widely assumed in the philosophy of emotions, other philosophical areas, and indeed by non-philosophers, uh, that agents can get angry for no reason. Uh, what this means is that a subject of anger would express or display anger towards another agent or an object uh, when there's no tenable reason to do so. I want to claim that this line of thinking is a mistake. I want to claim that an agent always has a reason to get angry, and uh, what we mean when we say an agent has gotten angry for no reason is that we are judging their anger to be unjustified or irrational. My main claims in this presentation are the following, uh, that there is always a reason behind an agent's anger, uh, that evaluating an agent's anger as irrational or unreasonable does not mean that the agent did not have a reason to be angry, and finally, vapid anger, a term I'll explain in detail towards the end, uh, does still contain a reason for the subject of the anger, uh, even if we find the reason unjustified. So, uh, Nussbaum in her 2016 book, Anger and Forgiveness, argues that there seems to be only two types of anger an agent can feel. A type of uh, payback anger, which centres around vengeance for a wrong that was done to you or someone close to you. And a type of anger which focuses on fixing a status ailment. Like if you were wronged at a family gathering by one of your family members, and you wanted to fix it by bringing that person down to your level. She further argues that there is a third good type of anger, which she calls transitional anger. Uh, this is anger whereby the subject of which feels anger towards an event and thinks, I didn't like that thing that happened. What can be done to ensure that doesn't happen again? The problem with Nussbaum's account is that there are obviously more types of anger that an agent can feel, which I will address when explaining vapid anger. But more crucial for the present moment is that there is an assumption that if an agent gets angry and their anger does not fit into these three categories, that, that the anger came about for no reason almost like a rabid or feral type of anger. Nussbaum does not explicitly state this, but it does seem to be a conclusion one can draw from her arguments. There are other examples in the literature that are not that are far more obvious, uh, like this comment by Cherry, which is stated without argument. Uh, people are often angry for no reason, or for reasons that do not always warrant anger. Comments like this are often stated as if we just know them to be true, which is far from the case. In folk psychology, this is also where many people talk about anger. When we see an agent who is angry, it is very easy to state that the person is angry for no reason, or that they shouldn't be angry, there's no reason for that. When we talk like this, both philosophers and non-philosophers, I contend that we do not actually mean that the person has no reason. I contend we are making a judgement about the agent's anger, and that judgement is one of condemnation. However, in order to fully state my claim and try and convince you, I must break down the processes of anger into its fundamental components through how a subject of anger would see them. So in order to establish that anger must ha always have a reason, we must first analyse the predecessor to the reason, which is the cause. A cause is to be understood as some event or amalgamation of events that lead to a reaction or an effect of an amalgamation of reactions of, or effects. A cause is a mechanical process by which some effect takes place at its conclusion. When you hear your alarm clock in the morning, this causes you to wake up. When you burn your hand on the kitchen stove, this causes you to pull your hand back reflexively. When you stand in the mud, this causes your shoes to become dirty. These are very simple examples, but they perfectly illustrate the concept. There can be a regressive system of causes which adds complexity to the concept. When I hear my alarm clock in the morning, this is because the alarm clock was set to ring at a given time. There was therefore a preceding cause of the alarm clock ringing, namely me setting it to ring, and this is due to me wanting to get up for work early. I want to get up for work early because otherwise I will be reprimanded by my peers. Uh, 
This fear of not wanting to be reprimanded causes me to want to be in work early, etc., etc. This chain of causes can regress infinitely. But the point is that a cause for an event to take place does not generate itself, and that for a cause to exist, there can be, and often is, more than one influence for the cause's existence. I might want to set up my alarm clock to wake me up early so I can do laundry and make a healthy breakfast. There are at least three different desires here, each attributing to the same cause. It is vital to note that there can also be a tiered or hierarchical system of causes. Uh, returning to the alarm clock example, we note that the alarm clock rings because I set it to ring at a certain time. However, this is not the only cause and effect that makes the alarm clock ring. There are internal mechanisms all working simultaneously to ensure the clock operates. There are individual cogs working in tandem for the minute hand. There is a similar system in place for the second hand and the hour hand. There is a separate mechanism which keeps track of where each hand is at any given moment to ensure that the alarm clock rings at the correct time. There is a bell that is struck when it, that is struck when it is told uh, by this mechanism. Like the regressive system of causes, there is an equally important and complex system of internal causes that take place to ensure the overall cause takes place. This observation can be applied to any given cause at any given time. However, there exist causes that are either so large in scale or small in scale that attempting to map out a tiered or hierarchical system in them would be an exercise in futility. For example, the, the laptop I am now on, when I am writing, it has a multiple process, uh, it has a multitude of processes happening at once. So when I type one letter and it appears on screen, the processes which make it happen can be explained through code, inputs, uh, etc. But a system of causes as to, what, as to what caused any given letter to appear on the screen must include external systems to the laptop. So the factory where it was made, who made it, my own actions in the writing process, etc. We cannot simply stop at me typing the letter if we want an adequate explanation of the full system of causes. Obviously this is impossible, however. In order to say anything meaningful about what caused an event to take place, we need to find a middle ground as to what is an acceptable explanation. I therefore propose this solution. Something, uh, some event E1, can be classed as a cause for another event, E2, if it can be perceived that E1 is directly in influential on E2. By directly influential, I mean perceptible or explanatory in the immediate sense. Returning to the laptop example, the event E1 is me typing a letter on my keyboard, and the event E2 is that the specific letter showed up on the screen. E1 is directly influential on E2, as it can be perceived, uh, and I can explain it in an immediate sense. I typed a letter on my keyboard, so a letter showed up on the screen. A directly influential cause need not be perceived or perceivable in order for it to be a directly influential cause. So if I leave my laptop unattended for some time and I return to a random assortment of letters showing on the screen, I need not have perceived that somebody typed them. I can infer through an explanation that in the or an explanation in the immediate sense that somebody must have typed these letters. This explanation of causes is required to analyze causes regarding emotions specifically anger in, instance, in this instance, and is, as it is often confused what exactly constitutes a cause and what does not. We can use two examples. So, uh, the first example, uh, Amanda, Amanda has finished work and needs to catch a bus to get over to her child's school in time to pick them up. It starts raining on the walk over to the bus stop. This forces her to stop and fumble around in her bag for the fold-up umbrella she has stowed away. This setback delays her arrival to the bus stop by two minutes, meaning the bus has already passed. She has to wait for another bus, which will mean she will be late to pick up her child. This causes her to curse under her breath. She, she is angry. Second example, uh, Jake owns and runs a pub. He has regulars in every night and knows them quite well, even, even giving some of them free pints occasionally. 
He would call them friends. One night he's working as normal, and one of his regulars comes in with a nasty scar over his temple. Surprised, Jake asks the regular what happened, uh, what happened to them, which the given response is that the person was walking home the day before and had a bottle thrown at him from across the street by a gang of youths. Because Jake knows the regular quite well, his reactive emotion is not one of exclusive sadness or sympathy, but of anger. He wants the youth responsible to be punished. The two examples I just gave exemplify both of the outline criteria. In the first example, Amanda is perceiving events that are either happening directly to her, so the rain causing her to take out her umbrella, or happening around her, you know, the boss is leaving without her, which cause an angry response. She is perceiving the events as they happen, and these events are what cause her to feel anger. The second example contrasts the first. John does not perceive any event that causes him to be angry. He's told about another event through his regular customer, and this is what causes anger in him. So keep this idea of a cause in mind. So in order to contrast what a cause is from a reason, um, I'll start with another example. So imagine I'm sitting in a pub by myself. Uh, I have a drink in front of me and I'm on my phone. You, who are a good, who is a good friend of mine, walk in with some of your friends and head, head straight for the bar. Before you get to the bar, you notice me sitting alone and you tear away from your friends for a moment and come over to ask me what I'm doing sitting alone. I reply that I was waiting for you, and I'm quite disappointed you were so late. Uh, perplexed, you ask, what, what do I mean? Uh, the two of us never made plans to meet up. I then show you your Twitter feed, uh, where you explicitly state you're going for a drink at the same pub we are in. Again, you're taken aback and ask why I'm here, as your Twitter feed doesn't explain my presence. I explain that I'm here because you said you were coming out for drinks on your Twitter feed. This process continues with both of us not being able to convey our, bewil our bewilderment adequately, until we finally part ways. So what's missing in this scenario for us to both understand what's going on? It is that I don't seem to have a sufficient reason to, to give you for my presence in the pub. When I explain that I'm waiting for you because of your Twitter, Twitter feed, my explanation seems to be lacking an actual explanatory element. It does not explain why I'm in the pub. All it explains is that I saw your Twitter feed. Imagine a similar scenario where we made plans to meet at the pub and you had forgotten. When you enter the pub with your friends and you ask me why I'm there, I remind you that we agreed to meet up for a drink. You understand this and apologise. You understand that the reason I am there is because we had made plans. So there is an explanatory element to my reason. So what is fundamentally different between the two explanations I provided? The second explanation makes sense to you as it is, as it is directly related to my waiting for you, whereas the first explanation is not. I contend that the first explanation should be viewed as a cause for my action, and the second explanation should be viewed as a reason. I must preface this claim by mentioning that this is how the external observer, or you in this case, would view my actions, but the subject expressing their explanations would view them as adequate reasons. So I'll return to this idea in a moment. So when I tell you that I viewed your Twitter account and then went to the pub, it sounds to you like I'm merely given a, cause and a causal explanation for my actions. They do not seem justified. You would, have a, you would have a similar reaction if I simply said, I hope you're in the pub. The explanatory element is missing. However, when I explain that we made plans, and that is why I am waiting, my actions do seem justified. There's a reason why I'm waiting. Note that for both of these explanations, there is a linked chain of events as to why I'm in the pub, but only one explanation has a robust chain of events that outline a rational trajectory that would lead me to be in the pub. The other explanation seems like a random assortment of events that lead me to be in the pub. What separates from a reason from a cause, then, is the idea of justification. A reason is a justified cause. 
However, the criteria for justification can be different between the agent that is performing an action and the external observer. An action or series of actions can be justified to the agent, but not to agents observing. In order to understand this idea fully, we, we should unpack the notion of a justification for a cause. So in order, in order for a cause to be justified, it has to make sense to an agent, either an external agent or the subject carrying out the action. The pathway from one event to another must be rational. If it does not seem rational, then it is not justified. It is obviously possible for an external observer to deem a pathway of events that lead to an agent's actions as irrational and thus unjustified. However, it is also possible for the subject to find the same pathway of events perfectly rational. Returning to the example just given, I could think that because we were such good friends, it is perfectly rational to assume that when you arbitrarily announce your intention to go out for a drink, it is an invitation for me to tag along. After all, if we're such good friends, surely this wouldn't be a problem. Obviously, my analysis of the situation is incorrect. This assumption is proven wrong when you were taken aback by my presence. Note that my reason still makes sense to me. The pathway of events seems rational. So there is a divergence of what makes sense here. My explanation makes sense to me, but does not make sense to you. So I posit that an angry subject is always justified to themselves regarding their own anger, thus making it the case that anger always has a reason. It is not possible to get angry for no reason. So for example, imagine you were linking this back to anger. Um, imagine you were in a supermarket to pick up your, week your weekly groceries. There's a global pandemic happening, so you have a mask and gloves on to ensure you are protected from ancillary bacteria that might be lingering in your vicinity. Because you live in a Western country where masks in public have not yet been normalised, there are many people who are not wearing them. One such person is in line behind you, and they take umbrage with your precaution, and they cough at you, which gets a laugh from some people. You snap and shout at the person, claiming they're acting in an awful way. Your anger here makes sense to you. There's a clear reason as to why you are angry. They shouldn't have done what they did. So, warranted anger, then, is what we can call anger that has a reason. So if, a subject, so if the subject of anger always has a reason behind their anger, their anger is always warranted. If an agent's anger was not warranted, they wouldn't get angry. So this is a controversial claim, as it seems that, I'm, that what I'm stating is that everyone is always right when they're angry. But that's not the case. I'm stating that an agent always has a reason behind their anger. I am not stating that their anger is good or just. This is where the idea of vindicated anger comes into play. Before I move on, it must be said that I'm not claiming that anger develops in a step-by-step -step process, kind of like connecting the dots. All I'm stating is that this all happens simultaneously, and the taxonomy I'm laying out here, laying out here is a way of kind of making sense of this anger. So, vindicated anger is anger whereby the subject of which knows they are correct in feeling, like they, they should be feeling it. When I witness a robbery or hear about a murder, I know that I should be angry. It is correct for me to be feeling this emotion. The key to this concept lies in the normative term should. Uh, for the purposes of this talk and, and my account of anger in general, when I employ the term should, I am using it as a shorthand for if the anger that I am feeling right now was to be presented to a group of my peers, they would see my anger as warranted, or, or another way of putting it is, they would acknowledge that they would get angry at the same thing. So thus vindicated anger is anger whereby the subject knows their peers would approve of or understand, and that's why the subject knows they're correct in feeling the anger. So vindicated anger is most commonly seen regarding moral or, or societal known violations. So uh, another few examples. Imagine you're at work sitting in your office, which is on the ground floor, and a brick comes through your window. You hear laughing and footsteps running away. Furious, you run outside and scream after the culprits, unsure of whether to phone the police or give chase. 
one of your colleagues comes outside to ask what's wrong. Once you explain the situation, they too get angry and explain how the incident is disgraceful. Another example, uh, imagine you're driving down a narrow street. Uh, there are parked cars on either side, so it's quite difficult to see the footpaths. A person whom you could not see runs out from in between the vehicles to cross the road, forcing you to brake suddenly to prevent a collision. Furious, you roll down your window and begin shouting profanity at this person. Another person arrives on scene to ask why you were shouting. After an explanation, they too get angry and agree that what has happened was very dangerous. So the first scenario was a clear example of a moral norm violation. It was wrong of the culprits to throw a brick through your window. The second scenario is an example of a societal norm violation. It's not necessarily wrong for someone to cross the road at a dangerous time. It's just irresponsible and expe expected by society at large that one doesn't do that. However, both examples show a subject feeling anger which is vindicated by another person. The anger is understood by the other person and deemed an acceptable response. This is the ideal situation in order for one to know their anger is vindicated. But one does not necessarily need to have their anger deemed acceptable by someone else in the moment to know their anger is vindicated. Often the subject can feel anger and know their anger is vindicated without overt external approval. The subject can witness a robbery, feel anger, and know that if their anger was presented to a group of their peers, it would be deemed acceptable. Non-vindicated anger is the same as vindicated anger, except when the subject's anger is actually presented to their peers, it's deemed incorrect or irrational. In the two examples I just gave, it is not absurd to imagine that the person whom you are explaining your anger to might find it irrational. When your colleague inquires about your screaming after the culprits, they might exclaim that the situation is only kids being kids and you shouldn't be mad. When the concerned passerby asks you why you're shouting profanity, they might state that people make mistakes and your reaction was too extreme. In both instances, we feel warranted in our anger, as I already argued before, and we also think our peers should understand our anger. This, however, is a disagreement in how anger is evaluated, which is extremely important to understanding the overall phenomenology of anger. For now, however, note the taxonomy of vindicated anger that I've just presented. So a subject feels anger and is warranted in their anger. The subject feels vindicated in their anger, as they think that if their anger was presented to their peers, it would be accepted and seen as rational. Then one of two things happens. The anger is presented to their peers and is seen as rational, or the anger is presented to their peers and seen as irrational. So anger is vindicated to the subject first, and then either confirmed to be vindicated or non-vindicated. If the anger is never presented to their peers, it remains vindicated to the subject as it has not been challenged. In contrast to these two phenomena, vapid anger is anger which does not have to be presented to the subject's peers. The subject who is angry knows that their anger should not be felt. If this anger was presented to their peers, it would almost always be seen as irrational. It differs from non-vindicated anger in this crucial respect. Non-vindicated anger is anger which the subject thinks is vindicated but is seen as irrational by their peers. Vapid anger is anger the subject knows is irrational and thus doesn't even have to be presented to their peers for the confirmation of its irrationality. Vapid anger is quite common and not necessarily limited to niche cases. It can be felt by the same subject many times a day depending on the scenarios in which they find themselves. So perhaps the most common form of vapid anger that manifests itself is that which relates to noises made when consuming food or drink. There are conventions in certain societies that state that eating loudly is a form of rudeness and breaking this convention is frowned upon. However, even if one does not take the convention into consideration or if the convention did not exist, they can still find the act of eating or drinking loudly anger-inducing. In any given situation whereby there are two or more agents in an enclosed environment and one of the agents is eating loudly, one or more of the agents present can get angry at this noise. So let's assume for this example that 
uh, there is no convention in place that states eating loudly is rude. The anger is then not arising due to a perception of rudeness. The subject feeling the anger must be perceiving some form of wrongdoing in the agent's eating habit, otherwise they would not be getting angry, and, and the subject is aware of this. Note that eating loudly is simply a combination of teeth chomping fiercely, uh, lips smacking harshly, and the agent swallowing loudly. There is nothing actually wrong with these actions, yet the subject of anger feels anger anyway. The subject is warranted in their anger, they, they have a reason, the noise is making them angry, but there is a further awareness of the absurdity to the anger. The subject knows that if they were to present their anger to a group of their peers, that it would not be vindicated. The anger is vapid by nature. There is nothing that could be said to the subject's peers that would convince them otherwise. Furthermore, if the subject feeling anger was to act upon their emotion, so through some form of expression like shouting, they would be reprimanded by their peers. And they know this. Being self-aware of one's anger is vapid is the most crucial aspect to this concept. By its very nature, vapid anger is an evaluation of one's own anger as unvindicated. An external agent cannot state that the anger of another is vapid. They can only state that, is, that it is unvindicated if they evaluate it as such. What makes vapid anger unique is that only the subject of anger can determine that it is vapid. An agent who is angry towards somebody eating loudly might evaluate their anger as completely vindicated, and external observers would, would probably see the anger as unvindicated. Anger is deemed vapid only when the subject of it deems it as such. It is a self-assigned token of anger. To make the distinction clearer, it might be helpful to imagine the situation like this. When I'm angry at your loud eating, either I can determine that I should not be feeling this anger, making it vapid, or you can determine that I should not be feeling it when I express it, making it unvindicated. The vapidness occurs when I acknowledge to myself that you would view the anger as unvindicated. So to conclude and recap, I'll hopefully have convinced you that when a subject feels anger, they always have a reason for feeling it, thus always making it warranted to the subject. When anger is seen by external agents as not having a reason, what we really mean is that the anger is unvindicated. We disapprove of the anger. I've not touched much on how anger is actually evaluated, and this is my current area of research. It's an extremely interesting area in the philosophy of emotions, especially when it comes to anger. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to thank the British Society of Phenomenology for giving me the opportunity to speak today, and I'd like to thank my supervisor, Dr. Alessandro Salice.